You can stay up to date and ahead of everyone else with The Leader's news, commentary and analysis by subscribing through your podcast provider. And we'd love to hear your thoughts too, so please do rate and review the show. From the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. Is this the first climate change election? We have a degree of harmony. We've got Labour saying we've got to get to net zero very fast. We've got the Greens saying we've got to get to net zero even faster. Lib Dems saying get there pretty fast. And the Tories put it in law for 2050. Our associate editor Julian Glover on why all the major parties are going green. But do politicians and voters truly understand what that means? Also, I'm absolutely excited to have been appointed as the bishop of Dover. Rose Hudson Wilkin is the Church of England's first black woman bishop. We're celebrating the sign of a changing church and ask where it goes next. And it's surprising to me that it has taken quite so long for, you know, the full breadth and depth of her work to really become known. As the Tate Modern launches an exhibition on photographer Dora Maar, its curator Emma Lewis on how an extraordinary female artist's talent was overlooked because of her male lover, Picasso. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is The Leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, why really going green means more than just planting trees. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Everybody hates climate change, but what are you really prepared to do? It could start with a vote. And Sean Barry, the co-leader of the Green Party, tried to collect a few of those with a manifesto launch warning about a future of climate chaos and social disaster. We're the ones who invented the Green New Deal over 10 years ago. We're the ones who know that climate action is so necessary that we have to prevent runaway climate change. In this election, though, all the major parties are all about cutting carbon. 
The Greens aim for net zero by 2030. The Labour conference voted for the same, although its manifesto may have a later date. The Tories have already put it into law for 2050, and the Lib Dems think it could be done five years earlier. Joe Swinson even planted a tree to get things started. How old is the tree? How old is the tree? Now there's a good question. You think it's 200? I'm going to guess this is not 200. <laughs> but as our editorial column points out, making real change will mean making hard choices that aren't really being talked about. This is the first climate change election. In a contest that's supposed to show only how badly divided our country is, the battle against climate change is a cheering example of something better. There are real choices about how we travel, what we eat, how we heat our homes, and how much we are prepared to pay for our energy that must be confronted. None of the answers will be immediately popular. This election is a chance to lock in public support, not just for the ends of going carbon-free, but also the means of doing it. Associate Editor Julia Glover, we have called this the first climate change election. That's a bold statement, isn't it, Julian? Yeah, and under the surface of this rather bitter, grinding out general election, something really interesting has happened, and that is that all the main parties want to do something about climate change. Now, you might think, well, that's obvious. We've got to do something. The science is really serious. We've got things like the floods happening with heavy massive rainfall in, in, in the north of England. Surely it's obvious we should act, but no, in lots of the world, including in political systems very close to ours, climate change is a huge political issue where governments get elected by saying climate change doesn't exist. In Australia, the place that sent the advisers who've come over to run Boris Johnson's campaign, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison, SCOBO he's called, he got elected basically by saying climate change isn't a problem. He famously took a lump of coal into Parliament and waved it around to show the coal's good stuff. Uh, and the bushfires there, there's a huge row about where the climate change has been involved in the extreme weather, weather. But over here, we have a degree of harmony. We've got Labour saying we've got to get to net zero very fast. We've got the Greens launching their manifesto today saying we've got to get to net zero even faster. And we've got the Lib Dems saying get there pretty fast. And the Tories put it in law for 2050. So disagreement about some of the ways to get there, but real harmony and a, and a sense that this matters. That is really interesting that the, the main parties all agree on where the goal is. It's just a case of the date. Is the date important? The date's massively important. If you want to get to net zero very soon, good luck. I can't work out how you could do it but it's a good ambition. 2050 is pretty tough. That's the date that's in law now. It might sound a long way off and you think, well, it's one of those things you can worry about it a few years down the track. But actually, if you go back the other way, you just get to the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's not a long time in history. To do that, we'd have to get rid of fossil fuel cars off the roads very rapidly. We'd have to electrify it far more than we're doing at the moment. All sorts of things about the way we live and our economy would change. But the extraordinary thing is all the parties agree that's what we've got to do. This is a united front on climate change. So if all the parties are agreeing on that's what we have to do, then clearly they feel that that's the, what the electorate wants them to do. But to get there, some of these decisions are going to be really, really hard. Do you think the public understands what it means to hit net zero? No, I don't think the public yet do, but more than that, nor do politicians. Uh, we heard a lot about tree planting the other day. The Liberal Democrats want 60 million trees. Labour, we haven't yet heard the number. They said they want to be informed by the science, a rather wise idea. Uh, and the Tories say they want 30 million trees, or they're promising 30 million more trees. Now, everybody loves trees, so that sounds great, until you work out that you might just end up with a rather 
tiresome, ugly conifer forests planted across beautiful bits of the countryside. So we've got to be careful what we do. Big rows in Ireland about tree planting, exactly these kind of targets. But also, even that number of trees isn't enough to make a big difference. After all, there are 90 million ash trees currently in the UK, and they're almost all going to die from ash dieback. So if you subtract 60 million from 90 million, even the Lib Dem promise might leave us with 30 million fewer trees than we have today. So the crisis is much, much bigger, and the scale of things that need to change will be much, much bigger. You made a point, though, that politicians are doing this because voters want them to. And I think we should give the politicians some credit. They're also doing it because they think it needs to be done. It's not always that popular. The tricky bit will be, will you do in politics the things that aren't popular to make this happen? Would you, for instance, as a politician, put a tax on aviation fuel, which is currently tax-free? Would you put up tax on petrol, which has not gone up as fast as it could have done? Those kind of things would reduce fossil fuel use. I'm not sure they're in manifestos when we see them in the next few days. Next. I'm looking forward to journeying with you throughout the diocese. The Church of England has consecrated its first black woman bishop and the Standard is excited for what's next. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Reverend Dr Rose Hudson-Wilkin has been chaplain to the Queen, chaplain to the Speaker of the House of Commons and a priest vicar of Westminster Abbey. She's already achieved incredible things and now she's the Church of England's first black woman bishop. I'm absolutely excited to have been appointed as the Bishop of Dover. Our changed lives can contribute to the lives of others being changed too. The standards welcoming her appointment. Congratulations to Rose Hudson-Wilkin. It's a sign of a changing church. When she was called into the ministry, women couldn't even become priests. Born in Montego Bay in Jamaica, she has led prayers at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and was an impressive and transformative chaplain to the House of Commons. We wish her well in her new role as Bishop of Dover and wonder what might come next. The first black woman archbishop? Why not? After all, from Dover, Canterbury is only 19 miles up the road. Now, Pablo Picasso's Weeping Woman was a painting of a real person. Her name was Dora Maar, and for a time she was one of the most celebrated surrealist photographers of the 1930s and 40s. 
and then her relationship with the man who painted her became all anyone wanted to talk about, and her own talent was all but forgotten. Now the Tate Modern's launching a major exhibition that aims to bring her images out of the shadow of Picasso. I spoke to its curator, Emma Lewis. I think most people may only know Dora Maar as the weeping woman from Picasso's work, but she was so, so much more than that. Yeah, yeah. So Dora Maar was with Picasso for around about eight years. To put that in context, she was active as an artist from about 1930 well into the 1980s. Her relationship with Picasso represents really a relatively small period in her life. Um, but the the perception of her as the weeping woman, uh, the understanding of her only in relation to him, persists. Um, and with this exhibition, we wanted to really show her as an artist in her own right, the full breadth and depth of her output. In fact, her accomplishments many years before she even met him. We do have weeping women in Tate's collection, and so we have used the exhibition as an opportunity to hear what Ma had to say about that work. She really was quite extraordinary. And I was looking into into her life, and she started mm. in commercial photography, which is quite—I guess that would be quite a restraining corporate world. But there were always these little touches of the surrealist in her, weren't there? Yeah. Well, you know, at this time. Um, commercial photography was one of the most important forums for avant-garde imagery. Um, editors and advertisers wanted to commission uh, photographers above illustrators, for example, and um, for people like, like Man Ray or for Dora Mara, like creating work on commission um, was an opportunity to really um, push the boundaries of the medium, if you like. And it's true that some of the most innovative work that she made, she, she made on commission, and she's doing this at exactly the same time as she's making her surrealist work. So we see the same approach and the same techniques. A lot of her work was only discovered after her death, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so she passed away in 1997, and it was only with the dispersal of her estate after this time that um, the full extent of her practice became known. For example, um, the darkroom work that she's making during the 1980s. Um, there is a, a very extended period in which she devotes herself to painting, and something that we have highlighted in the exhibition is the way in which the same techniques she uses um, in her works on paper, the very gestural, very material, textural. Um, there's a real interest in mark making. She's using those same techniques in her darkroom works, um, manipulating her negatives or making cameraless photographs. And so there's real parallels between these different areas of her practices. How does a woman whose talent is so obvious and who must have been recognised as a talent by her peers at the time risk being almost forgotten? It's the eternal question. I think that um, we all have short memories. Art history also has a short memory. And unfortunately, I think the truth of the matter is that anyone who was in Picasso's orbit had a hard time surviving that. So it's not surprising to me that she remained in his shadow, but it is surprising to me that it has taken quite so long for you know, the full breadth and depth of her work to really become known. Is that your job as a curator, Emma? Is that what you think your role kind of is in a way? I'm sure you must love doing the big blockbuster exhibitions. Is it very much your responsibility to show people here are, here are some of the other talents who need to be recognised, like Dora? Yeah, there's an absolute responsibility, uh, particularly like Tate, which is a, a public institution, um, to show a real variety um, of work. And this is not all about making blockbuster exhibitions from uh, very well-known names. It's also about introducing our audiences to figures who may be less well-known. You know, in, in France, 
Um, Duramar is a very well-known name, much less so here. And that's The Leader. To make sure you get the podcast at 4pm every weekday, subscribe through your provider and you can rate and review us too. If you can't wait until the afternoon, check out our audio news bulletins delivered at 7am. Just ask your smart speaker for the news from the Evening Standard. We'll see you tomorrow.